Charles Dickens, Thomas Hardy, Charlotte Bronte. Was are the most untouchable authors of classic literature. To their contemporaries, well, that's another matter altogether. This is Lit Slashing, a weekly podcast bringing you history's most notorious bad, backhanded, and brutal reviews of literary classics. Dr. Courtney Floyd. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunville. And uh, we are the hosts of Victorian Scribblers, a podcast about the lives and work of lesser known Victorian authors. This new podcast is our outlet for talking about maybe more famous authors. The first kind of literary monolith that we're going to slash is known to listeners of Victorian Scribblers as the enemy of the pod. Yeah. So Edward Bulwer Lytton whose full name is Edward George Earl Lytton Bulwer Lytton, 1st Baron Lytton, was born on the 25th of May, 1803, and died on January 18th, 1873. He was an English writer and politician, most famous for novels such as Pelham and The Last Days of Pompeii. Lytton also coined the phrases, the great unwashed, pursuit of the almighty dollar, the pen is mightier than the sword, and dweller on the threshold, as well as the iconic opening phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. There are contests to kind of replicate the worst opening phrase, um, the Bulwer-Lytton contest, and there's also a version of it for children, which I won third place in as a young person. <laughs> so I had the I had the worst, the least worst <laughs> first opening phrase. Still finished on the podium. Yeah. <laughs> so let's listen to some reviews. So what I've got as a review of Edward Bulwer-Lytton is in fact not a review of Edward Bulwer-Lytton. This is a review of James Justinian Morier's Zorab the Hostage, and the review was published in the Quarterly Review for December 1832. However, the editor of the Quarterly Review had something of a professional feud with Edward Bulwer-Lytton and his magazine, New Monthly Magazine. And because of that, we find some references to Bulwer-Lytton's work in reviews of other works. These gentlemen, since they permit themselves such more than epic use of materials rejected by the drama, might be expected to abstain from those features of dramatic composition which are peculiarly and especially incompatible with the epic form. Yet here again, they are perpetually delinquents. They avail themselves in diffuse narrative at every turn of expedience which are only allowed in the drama, because of its exclusive characteristic, namely, as a species that brings personages and events directly before the spectator himself without the palpable intervention of any third party. But this absurdity reaches its climax in the autobiographical novel, the very essence of which is to present things as they occur to the writer. With these artists, nothing is more common than to have an autobiographical hero describing a scene with his own father or brother, known from the beginning, as it afterwards appears, by him to be such. And yet, leaving us in ignorance that the personage was his father or his brother, until the discovery of that fact to us comes to be a matter of convenience to him in the unravelling of his third volume. This is blinking all the peculiar difficulties of the form of composition, depriving it of all its counterbalancing peculiar advantages, and introducing into its main structure the very trickeries which it was expressly meant to avoid. We not long since, in reviewing certain romances by one of the authors of the never-to-be-forgotten Rejected Addresses, had occasion to speak at length of the ridiculous fashion in which he, 
as well as less gifted imitators of Sir Walter Scott, has permitted himself to make use in fictitious narratives of real historical personages. And we may therefore pass lightly over the offences in this kind more recently perpetrated. We are not sure whether the taste of Mr Bulwer himself in this line is exhibited to higher advantage in his Paul Clifford, where he introduces a clumsy and witless caricature of King George IV and his ministers, under the guise and similitude of a troop of Hounslow highwaymen, the present Duke of Devonshire as Bachelor Bill, the landlord of a flash house in the minories, etc, etc. All this sort of travesty farce being inlaid into a fable of the days of King George I or in another piece where side by side with a sentimental, uses an outdated term here, but I would say Romany person, deeply learned in the minor poets of the Elizabethan age, figures the late Mr. Henry Fauntleroy, seen over the debtor's door at Newgate and all the rest of him, or in a third of the series wherein the hero and impudent wonder of 19 is gravely represented as living on the footing of intimate friendship and confidential intercourse with Bolingbroke, Pope, Swift, the Regent Orleans, Count Anthony Hamilton, Admiral Apraxin, the Tsar Peter I, and his consort, say nothing of occasional colloquies between the said beardless coxcomb and Collie Kibber, Matthew Pryor, Mr Addison, Richard Cromwell, ex-protector of England, Sir Richard Steele, the Abbé du Chalot, the Duke de Saint-Simon, Fleury, Dubois, Massillon, Danjot, Fantinelle, Madame de Maintenon, Louis XIV, and Monsieur de Voltaire, etc., etc. We had really thought that after Mr. Smith's episode of John Milton smoking tobacco and dictating Paradise Lost in a suburban parlour, into which a hero, we forget his name, happened to stumble when the bailiffs were in chase of him, there would have been an end of this horrible nonsense, but no. Mr. Bulwer has worked the same vein of absurdity with a still more daring hand. The author of Devereux makes the attempt, however unsuccessfully, to put characteristic words into the mouths of the great shades whom he evokes. That's a that's a quite a choice. Just be like, hey, um, <laughs> this totally unrelated review. Let's uh, slash my nemesis, Bulwer Lytton. <laughs> yeah, and it's like that's a good like four or five pages. They reference a few other, like, authors in there, but primarily it's all about Bulwer Lytton and about how much they hate him. And they're like, he tries to be Sir Walter Scott, he isn't Sir Walter Scott. They name drop all of the historical characters. <laughs> and it's like, he's, he can't write these correctly. That's fun. I just feel really sorry for Moriere. The review does get back to him, but it's about it's supposed to be about him, and they just keep going on about Bulwer Lytton. <laughs> It's like the editor wants this very specific review. <laughs> How can we swerve to Borlin? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. In both papers, you find like going back and forth. They're just com- continuously getting their jabs in against each other. Mm. Like both Borlin and I can't remember who was the editor of the Quarterly at this time, but they're just yeah continuously being like this guy's trash. No, he is um, mainly for political reasons. Sure. Yeah. I think um Bulwer Lytton being compared to other famous authors is maybe a point of uh, similarity between reviews. Maybe that's a good place to dive in mm-hmm. with the one that I found. A review of The Lady of Lyon, a play by E.L. Bulwer, published in the Athenaeum in 1838. In our notice of the theatres, we said almost all that was needful about the Lady of Lyon. 
praising it as a very effective and attractive melodrama, refusing it any higher title. We should have credited the author to some amount of dramatic talent undisplayed had he put forth just these claims for his piece, and no more. But when we find his preface talk of such a trifle as meriting aught beyond the public's indulgent acceptance and his own disdain, it obliges us to conclude that his standard of stage composition is low indeed, and that little improvement can ever be expected either from his sublimity of taste or his self-dissatisfaction. What dwarf model of the dramatic muse has our author before his eyes when he chuckles over a vaudeville play like this and brings it as triumphant proof of his successful wrestle on the Shakespearean arena? Forsooth, it demonstrates the writer's power to, quote, attain the art of dramatic construction and theatrical effect, end quote. Respecting dramatic construction, we cannot acknowledge Mr. Bulwer a proficient in the art. His play is a huddle of improbabilities. The characters and events are without natural unison or coherence, strung together by the mere cobweb of a very light subject. Verily, instead of joining Mr. Bulwer in his yo triumph, we feel rather surprised he does not chant a miserare, while his sins against legitimate drama are under judgment. As a reading play, his work amazes us still more. Even the language has little of his usual brilliancy, not a spark to a page. On the poetic score, we came to his Lady of Léon with very subdued expectations after his La Vallée. But even the prose of his new piece wants altogether his distinguishing smartness and the spangled richness of his diction elsewhere. Our solution of the phenomenon would be that Mr. Bulwer is out of his depth in the drama. Its immense requisitions swallow up his powers and leave him upon the surface. Feebleness itself. A pleasure boat cannot stem its way over Atlantic ridges. A goldfish cannot sport in those tremendous seas which the Leviathan spurts through his nostrils. If there be no such defect of dramatic force about our author, let us ask, where is the Cromwell announced and reviewed in the Westminster long since? Had not this subject been a nobler bait for his dramatic ambition, offered a field more fertile of reward to his dramatic husbandry, a wider scope on which to exhibit his dramatic power of construction than a maudlin French romance? But the same wisdom which taught Mr. Bulwer to decline our challenge once before will, no doubt, continue his mentor. It is far more safe to pick a posy garland at the roots of Parnassus than pluck a wreath of dark evergreen on the pinnacle. What are called by an understood misnomer, melodramas, or slight tackings together of scenes for theatrical effect, will remain, we opine, the most suitable, acceptable, and attainable drama in the present day. Nor, if Mr. Bulwer devote himself to such productions, do we despair of seeing an English scribe bring them into repute. It is better, by a whole leaf of laurel, to be a scribe than the nearest thing Great Britain has to him, an illegitimate dramatizer. I, one thing that I love, as well as the point of comparison, like no, the point of similarity between these two reviews of comparing them to other writers, they're both like, I guess he's talented, but this work really does not do it. Yeah. I mean, this is full of backhanded insults, like um, <laughs> stick to things you can be good at, you know, like this kind of... Um, patronizing stick to melodrama that's that's what you can accomplish without embarrassing yourself buddy <laughs> and i like that the like the review that i read which was 
primarily about Devereux, but there are other like works thrown in there. It's like this may have been able to work in drama, but it doesn't work in prose. And yours is like this may work in prose, but it does not work in drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's just not doing it for anyone. And I would be lying if I said I wasn't kind of glad. Yeah. This is Lit Slashing, where uh, we're reminded that reviews are definitely not written for their authors. <laughs> it's much more fun to read it. Generally much more fun if you don't like the author. Um, but yeah, much more fun to read it with a bit of distance. Yes. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Slashing Pod. If you want to find out more about, especially the Victorian authors that we might mention, listen to Victorian Scribblers. If you want to... And I can say this without it being weird. If you want to listen to some actually good fiction, listen to Courtney's other podcast, The Way We Haunt Now. Aww. The I think the second season is coming out soon. Um, right? Well, it's in production right now. It's coming it's out in, in December. <laughs> if you want to listen to or engage with some fiction, that gets a very good review from me and I think a lot of other people. Yeah, listen to that. Aww. If you are looking for more fiction about reviews specifically, I can highly recommend The One Stars, a podcast about one-star reviews written and received across the multiverse. Uh, I'm not being paid to promote this. I just love it. <laughs> but yeah, I say the normal normal please apply of please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. Well, I think we could, we could maybe say something about uh, please leave us not a one star review <laughs> yeah I, I said review and then I was like if you enjoyed this rate review and subscribe if you reacted to it similarly to how these reviewers reacted to Edward Paul will listen maybe write that in your diary and don't tell anyone please <laughs> <laughs>